You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Natifa Green. Natifa is an assistant professor of philosophy at Gettysburg College. Her teaching and research interests are in ethics and social and political philosophy. Her current book project is an ethical analysis of habits and moral psychology considering the role of habits and liberatory social practice. In this episode, we talk about habits, its connection to character, why the revolution will be mundane, learning languages, and so much more. Hello, Natifa, and welcome to the Yummy Podcast. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you. So good to hear your voice. It's been, it's been a long time. I know. Likewise. <laughs> likewise. So tell me, Natifa, how did you get interested in philosophy? I think it's because I have been always um, in a situation where I had questions. <laughs> and by that, I mean, I'm a middle child in a big family and an introvert. And um, I am those things in a culture where extroversion and, you know, being open and uh, different personality traits are more of the norm. So even from my personality, my very earliest experiences, I've always wondered about things because I would notice differences. And I'm also an avid reader. Um, So even as a child, um, I just loved reading. I enjoy reading fiction. Um, I enjoyed reading fiction more when I was a child. Um, I tend to read more nonfiction now. But um, yeah, trying to figure things out by reading is what I uh, think of as one of the earliest reasons that I set on this path. And there are other uh, aspects of my family life and background that I think are also um, reasons for big questions. Um, So my earliest memories are in Caracas, where my family was living because of my father's work. And um, I grew up with this sense of different places, different cultures and um, languages. And so I understood uh, or wondered about how environments could be different and that mm. um, no one place could be taken for granted. Um, I also think that um, my family's interest in politics, the dinner table conversations, or just around the talkativeness <laughs> that I just described, also involved a lot of politics. And so I've always been um, in an environment where people would have passionate discussions about ideas. Now, there's tension with that, too, because my family also happens to be religious and religion is very important to my parents and to my ancestors. And um, being a girl, being a black girl raised in conservative Christian environments um, with all of the kind of stoicism and the 
West Indian respectability you can imagine that that entails, I had questions. I wondered why I was supposed to obey certain rules. And although my mother allowed us to wear shorts and play sports, um, I have cousins who can't wear pants, um, who have to cover their hair. And so noticing that I wouldn't necessarily agree with those rules, but they seem to be really important, made me want to know why. Like, why do we have to do this? And it's so interesting. I call this the gift of being Trinidadian. It's so interesting to have this um, religious heritage and a conservatism across many different religions as well. It's a um, pluralistic culture with different religions. And also there's carnival culture where extroverted sociability and fetting and, you know, uh, hang, liming, that's a word for hanging out. That's part of the cultural environment. So noticing these different aspects of culture and different um, ways of being in my family made me wonder why one set of rules would be better than another. And I would get in trouble in Sunday school for some of the questions that I asked. Um, one incident that stands out in particular, uh, I remember I got in trouble for saying that the ending of Job's story didn't seem like a happy ending. And I still think that. <laughs> but I got in trouble um, in Sunday school. And so uh, I think that wondering why has been a part of my personality. Maybe it's innate, but being um, in the environments that I've been exposed to, I think that um, I've been primed by my family background and cultural background to have a sense of wondering about big questions. And I, and I really respect my parents and I'm close to my family, but growing up and figuring out how to reconcile that uh, respect and love with a different belief system and parents who pushed me to be high achieving and intellectually curious that doesn't sit well with obedience so <laughs> learning how to reconcile my place in my family I think that set me up to be open to wanting to find answers to big questions So we're going to transition to what your what your research or uh, one aspect of your research project having to do with habits. We talk about philosophical questions, as you alluded to. Got to ask if we're going to talk about habits. I, I want to get your view of what are habits. So what on, on your view, what are habits? And usually in philosophy, when we think about habits, we immediately think about Aristotle's account of habits. So I also wonder, are you 100% persuaded by on Aristotle's team or are there points of departure? I think of habits as the foundation of our conscious experience. So if there's anything like a first principle or the thing that is essential for being conscious, thinking uh, with will and choice, anything like any aspect of our intellectual life, I think habits are the foundation of having conscious experience. And um, there are different kinds of habits in our bodily system. So not all of them involve consciousness or conscious direction. 
But to me, habits are the foundation of our experience because it's this bridge between the parts of ourselves that we can't access and the parts of ourselves that we can. So there's a semi-mechanistic or semi, uh, a part of a, of a habit that's beyond control and a part of some habits that can be within control. And um, you're right, uh, Aristotle in Western philosophy brings up um, the connection to habits for many of us in our context. Um, And I've recently, more recently, become interested in the rich traditions of thinking about habits in Asian philosophy, which um, weren't really a part of my graduate education, but uh, there are obviously Confucian, Buddhist, and uh, different versions in Hinduism or yoga traditions where there are accounts of habits as well. But to bring it back to Aristotle, who was my first um, interest as an undergrad, actually, in thinking about habits, I will say I am mostly persuaded by what Aristotle thinks habits are. Um, And I appreciate that they're linked to his concept of the soul, if you want to use his language that's old-timey, the old-timey English translations of the soul or what it means to be a creature like us. And it's not just that we have thinking parts of ourselves, but our bodies and our emotions are important in Aristotle's conception of what habits are. And it's meaningful to me that I I do agree that habits are the core of ethical life that they're the most important aspect of ethics for me. Um, That's what I'm drawn to because our tendencies seem to have more pull on us than um, individual decisions, which do certainly matter. But to think about what it means to be a good person or to live a good life or to have a good society, acts by themselves to me, aren't as important as tendencies or structures or how we line up what becomes more likely, what we make possible and what we make impossible. So I think of habits as guidelines for action. Um, And they're not all bad habits. They're uh, an aspect of our experience. Now, we tend to think of bad habits first, but I really like that Aristotle defines habit and thinks of habits in general before getting into which ones are good and which ones are bad. Right. Um, and I think that uh, the idea that habits are second nature is appealing too. Um, there are some details of what that might mean, and the, this is where I would depart from what Aristotle thinks in that I don't fully agree with his definition of human nature, but I think that the structure of what a habit is still holds, even without his particular content. So the idea of a natural slave, for example, or some of the other content of what it means to be human or human nature, um, I would throw that out. And I think that the concept of habits as the central problem or question for ethics, I think that still holds. So, so let's talk about that development part. Let's talk, okay. Can we can we talk about development for a minute? Yeah. And you mentioned, you know, how Aristotle kind of talks about what 
habits are before he kind of goes into kind of the distinctions between the two. And he talks about good habits and bad habits. But, but you know, usually when people think about habits, we don't want to just think about that in the abstract. We do want to know what should we do and how do we develop them? And so um, how do we develop habits? For a lot of people, they don't know that they even have the habits that they do have. And so, right. you know, kind of what is the origin story of that? And then there are several people who recognize that they have bad habits and they want to get out of that domain and develop good habits. So, and there's a lot, you know, I just got finished reading a book called Atomic Habits. Ah, yes. Um, I love that book, by the way. It goes to show that philosophers, you know, we read a whole bunch of stuff. Yes, um, but yes. Atomic Habits, for those who do not know, it's, it's, it's a, one might say that it's self-development. In a, it's in more a, about business how development. to. Yeah. Yes, how to book. Can you talk about how, how do we develop habits and how, how can we develop better habits and let go of the bad ones? Well, I think that habits in their most basic definition are how we learn language, for example. It's how we learn to walk. Uh, it's how we organize our experience. And so some of our habits are uh, innate or involve things that we um, could potentially do given uh, how our bodies and selves are constructed. So in that sense, some habits are developed because we live with others and we acquire the skill or we learn how to do certain things more readily, like walking is a habit now because I've already learned to walk, right? Mm -hmm. um, so any action like that, that we learn and do routinely, I would count it as a habit, first of all. Uh, but we usually tend to think of other um, activities that are a bit more complex. When we think about habits, it's usually because we want to change a bad one. So you're right. The habits that we want to change come to our minds first. And the one thing that I try to keep in mind is that the tendency to define habits by the bad ones might send us in the wrong direction. It's true that the habits we want to change are difficult to change and we face resistance and it can seem like it's easier to develop bad habits, but I don't think that's actually true. And I think that if we enlist what does work, if we look at the habits that do serve us, we can get a sense of how to develop better ones or what we need to put in place in order to have desirable habits, let's say desirable instead of good. Let's, uh, I tend to think of habits that we want uh, or habits that we don't want. I like that. And the ones that we want to develop um, would need conscious, deliberate practice and attention, it's true. And it's important to avoid treating habits as if they're merely a mechanism, as if we're merely a mechanism. Like if we do something enough, then it will become a habit. Because the affective or emotional part of habit formation is really important too. And this is um, one aspect of how Aristotle thinks about habits that I like a lot. Because it's important to notice what's pleasurable. It's important to notice how our emotions are functioning. And if we can, tap into that to direct the habits that we want. 
Now, it can be more difficult in the beginning because of the pull of what we have done in the past. And so there might be different ways of trying to activate habits that we want. One could, well, enlisting what feels good is an important thing, first of all. I think that trying to um, force habits that don't feel good might work for a while, but I don't know that that's a winning formula. And reminders that can activate a whole sequence of activities over time, like building up that sequence so that you can routinize what you'd like to stop having to think about after the deliberate conscious phase. Reminders that can activate how you do things with a particular trigger or an item, like uh, what reminds you to brush your teeth or what you think of when you brush your teeth. You can create a cadence of activities that you can put in place. But to be honest, um, I do less thinking about the how-to than the what. And so I turn to psychology, and there's great empirical research out there um, on habit formation. And I find, though, that in the business world, the productivity tips for habit formation, um, there aren't a lot of people of color. There aren't a lot of women in that space. And so although I don't do the experimental psychological research, it is important for me to be in the arena, so to speak, thinking about what habits might be. Um, Although I do less of the recommending in terms of like tips for developing or breaking habits. You talk about what habits are, and, I, and, I, and I'm wondering if we can transition to kind of the connections of, of habits with other things. So, so one of the things that people tend to believe, and at least they borrowed this from Aristotle, is that there seems to be a strong connection between what we take to be habits and what we take to be character. And we're particularly talking about kind of the moral domain. Do you, do you think we are what we do? And for Aristotle, what we do repeatedly is our character. Do, do, you, do you think habits shape our character? Do you think character shapes our habits? What, what do you think is the relationship between the two there? Yeah, I do think we are what we do. But what we do is in context. And so I worry about some ways that this idea of character formation can be hijacked to shift responsibility onto individuals where that individual might not necessarily be responsible for contextual features of their action. So in general, yes, we are what we do. But What we do is in a range of possibilities of what's available to us. So a context where some things are not possible because of injustice, that's really important. It's important to know um, what kind of situation we're talking about, whether basic needs are met or not met, for example, Um, because that determines how we'll think about what anyone does to right. create their character or the person that they become over time. Just just to be clear here, so you think that wherever we may dwell in the social context within that is going to have a large influence about what our habits are? I think so. I think so. And it's important to recognize the significance of that if only to think about what conditions we should put in place 
for everyone to have a possibility of living a good life. Now, beyond that very general set of um, like justice concerns, the individual character depends on how someone is educated, how someone is, uh, how someone, what someone can learn because of the context where they are. And so I do think that habits create character, but I, I worry about making it seem like our choices create our destiny because I don't Mm. think that's entirely true. So it's a mixture, I think, of decision-making, of um, individual kinds of considerations, and contextual considerations, too. I also think that after a while, character is informed by habits, so it is a reciprocal relationship after a time. So this is why habits are fascinating to me, because it, there are different kinds of causation there. In one way, habits cause or create character. Um, if you think of a beginning, middle, and an end, you could tell that story. But within the experience or the action of living out a character trait, the habit intensifies or plays back into the structure that we're calling character, a disposition or a trait. And so there's another kind of causality there, the kind that Aristotle would call a final cause or teleology, if you take a philosophy class, but it is the kind of causality that's more like a circle rather than Mm. a line from point A to point B. And so in Another sense, at the same time, um, there is this circular feedback loop um, that is more like uh, a seed that becomes the kind of plant that it's designed to become. And in that sense, um, there are parts of habituation uh, or parts of our processes of being alive, experiencing life in the world um, that develop and grow um, in ways that perhaps we can't fully control all of it, although we can direct and select conditions that can hopefully, um, and we should put in place conditions that would allow for growth into a good life. Um, So it depends on why we're talking about habits, I think, to answer the question of which causes what whether habit cause character or vice versa. Let's talk about one, one particular context, the context that we happen to be in, which is the U.S. context. And let's now go from the moral, which we can't really go from the moral to the social and political because they're both intertwined. But, but I wonder if you can dissect for us, what, what do you think are the, the social, the political habits within the U.S. context? It, culturally speaking? Culturally speaking, yes. Which is also going to be politically as well, yes. Right, of course, of course. One that comes to mind is a a tendency to treat Black and Indigenous suffering as an ennobling past. I don't know Mm -hmm. how else to put it, but this sort of almost ritual indulgence, almost, in portraying suffering and acting as if 
It is leading to progress by engaging in this ritual um, and acting as if it's not like a clear and present danger, but a fact of the past. It's it's interesting to think of these rituals around um, crimes against humanity and suffering. I I think of those as habits in U.S. culture. Some of the more um, commercial interpretations of Black History Month or even the ways that um, real gruesome events are treated as if they're ritually acknowledged and something you're supposed to know about and not a present situation that needs to be changed with action, not just acknowledging it or knowing about it. And on, on another note, uh, maybe related, I think that a certain kind of politeness or niceness that doesn't directly address things, especially matters of social and political importance, seems to be social and political habit here in the U.S. The way of um, being nice or emphasizing niceness that can actually be really cruel or unkind, being nice is not always being kind. That's what I'm trying to get at. And in many, uh, you know, like small talk or cultural, uh, just as a generalization, being nice sometimes takes precedence over being kind or being and doing good. I think that assumptions of white innocence are a major bad habit. And in some of the contemporary social and political writings on um, the habits of racial whiteness, this has come up. I, I do think that there are gendered assumptions of white femininity as well that can be considered bad habits. Sarah Ahmed has an interesting way of talking about enforced heterosexuality as a social bad habit, um, heterosexism as a straightening orientation that makes any deviation from that norm um, seem bad or wrong. And so enforced heterosexism or normalized heterosexuality is a social bad habit in Sarah Ahmed's view of sexual orientation as well. I, I like how you, you started off saying, uh, in answering this question, you, you started off using the word ritual. Uh-huh. And then you use it again. What is, what, is, what is the connection there between rituals and habits? Yeah, I think um, rituals touch into what habits do for us. Um, Rituals activate the um, bodily, sensory memory, and they repeat. They're a way of repeating what we have habituated. But rituals also have this other layer, like the feedback loop that I talked about with individual character and habits. Socially speaking, Rituals build community. Rituals have a circular causality and they feed into the creation of a group or a home or a kind of connectedness where the ordinary things, the ordinary activities that um, feel like they are automatic 
are the foundation for existing in connection to others. Now, that can be for good and for ill. This is just a description, not a judgment of whether it's good or bad. But I think that rituals tap into our capacity for habit to create belonging. And the ways that we learn how to do things almost automatically are a kind of skill. So uh, Julia Annas is a neo-Aristotelian contemporary scholar who talks about how habits are skillful. And when you think of a skill, you're not merely repeating what you've done before, right? You're getting better at it or you're able to do more. So if you think of something like the sense of being at home, Think of when you moved into a new place or if you're in a new neighborhood, the process of becoming familiar involves habituation. And with habituation, there's a kind of freeing up of space and the skillfulness that makes um, habits seem like they're invisible now, where this neighborhood was new, it's not new anymore. That opens up other possibilities. We can do different things when we walk around. We can think of different things without having to pay attention to the process of acquiring the habit. I think that's true in terms of um, social practices. If you think of liturgical types of religious practices or rituals where casual rituals with friends, the repetition isn't a repetition of exactly the same. Other features get built on top of the repetition. And I think connectedness, a sense of what it means to be in a community is one of those features that builds on top of repetition through ritual. We, we, We typically think or tend to think that things like collaboration or imagination and resources and even emotions, which I work on, play an important role in what we call liberatory social practices and liberatory struggle. But you also think that habits do too. And so what do you think is the role of the habitual action that you've been talking about in our liberatory practices? I I think that in one way, a habit can be a goal or an imagined outcome. And what I mean by that is if you can think of what seems remarkable because of how egregious the injustice is or how um, much struggle is required to change it, right? There's a present injustice. Um, when that injustice has been changed, that situation will become ordinary. It won't be extraordinary to have equal schooling for all children, for example. Um, We can think of how ordinary it would be to have the situation that we're trying to achieve. So it's it's a hoped for state in one way. Um, that's one way I think that habits are important in liberatory struggles, uh, uh, an imagined hoped for ordinariness. And there's also the ways that creativity builds on a foundation of mundaneness or habituation, the ordinariness that makes the extraordinary moments possible or the new 
creative moments possible. I think those are really important. And um, in my dissertation, I remember thinking about this, writing about this in terms of jazz. And this is how I still think about it and want to continue developing where improvisation is possible for the skilled musician because of the the skills, the habituation that they've acquired. So the creativity is possible because of all the layers and accumulated expertise that are there, like a sediment, like a foundation. And so I think that in prioritizing innovation or um, creativity and resistance, um, there is a way that habit's important at the foundation of a lot of liberatory practices. And this isn't uh, an exclusionary claim, like instead of this, I'm saying habit, <laughs> you know, it's not instead of this, but that. It's right. more that I think habits, it's and. I think habits are important and they don't get the attention they deserve in part because a lot of the work of liberatory practices involves changing bad habits. But I don't think it follows from that effort to change bad habits that habituation has no place in the liberatory context. True, there are certain kinds of habits that will need to be changed or prevented, but the improvisation that I just described is open-ended. It's not a closed, shut-down, replicating more of the same habituation, which um, would describe uh, the kind of habits that enforce racial whiteness as a norm or heterosexuality as a norm. Um, those force replication of more of the same. So in that sense, habituation is less skillful when it's in its oppressive social form or it prevents skill, it prevents innovation. And if we think of what um, liberatory social practices hope to achieve, um, there's also the meantime of the movement. In the meantime, it's important to have these mundane spaces where solidarity enables a kind of exhale, a sense of being at home. The oppositional force of transformative justice isn't sufficient by itself. And I don't think anyone, um, I'm not, I don't think anyone who emphasizes innovation or opposition would disagree with me. I just think that habit doesn't get the attention it deserves in liberatory social practices. I want you to put some what I call meat on those bones. Yeah. I don't meet, meat, so the whole thought of that is disgusting to me. But 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 I, wa I want you to give us an example here because there's some things that are running through my mind and I wonder if they count, right? Okay. As you were talking, I was thinking about, hey, some of my best ideas come in the shower, mm -hmm. right? Oh, some of my best ideas come when I'm driving. I don't even know I made it home. Like I was so unaware of the activity I was engaging in because it's such a habit, right? Or some of my, my most thoughts or uh, best solutions come through while I'm taking a run or while I'm walking. And then I begin to, to even think about uh, during the pandemic uh, years, <laughs> the pandemic years, um, <laughs> what was important for me to kind of survive uh, psychologically and also a whole bunch of allergies was to make sure that I had a daily routine every day. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that's usually my typical practice anyway, but I, I, I found it to be all more important being that I didn't have anywhere to go. 
you know, how can I make sure that, that everything was, was, there was a time and a place for everything. I was on schedule, that kind of thing. So, right. so really building up these habits while, while I was alone. And I wonder, is, is that what you're imagining? Is it, is it something different when it comes to liberatory practices or is this exactly what you're referring to? I think it's something similar. I probably fold more of the creativity into the structure of a habit than others do. And this is where I have interesting discussions with other philosophers, because I think that um, it's common to treat the routine part that you're not paying attention to as the habit and then the rest of it as something else. But I'm not convinced by that. I, I think that uh, it's a question of where we direct our attention. And so in the scenario that you just gave where you're driving and you came up with an idea, your attention was not focused on driving, but you were enlisting your um, habitual capacities to drive. And um, that experience of, you know, thinking of something when you're not paying attention to it, that, that's so interesting. And I think that in that situation, driving is the habit and having that allowed the moment of creativity and they're not uh, definitionally distinct for me. So I think that the routine is the ground or foundation or uh, maybe an anchor and other possibilities are open because that anchor is in place. A lot of what we uh, talk about would depend on which ha- what habit we're talking about. Um, right, right. You know, and some of them have more bodily movement. Some of our habits are intellectual, you know, just more like how we think. So, you know, it would look a little bit different to describe how this um, innovative potential is there. But I do think that habits involve routine plus routine plus possibility and that's precisely why um, the habits that we find undesirable are so difficult to change because they create pillar or a weight in our uh, our tendencies of what we will do whenever we have a free moment if our smartphones become our habit then that's what we'll do and it's hard to change it once it's in place that's something that's been created because of habituation and you don't need your attention anymore to create the habit of driving or picking up your smartphone so attention is semi-directed in a time when these new possibilities jump into our mind I think because perhaps if we were focusing on the problem we wouldn't come up with the solution either right So full attention seems to be a different experience than semi-directed attention. And then there is the, uh, you know, lack of attention where something is completely routine. And all of those are uh, habitual in different ways. So I resist uh, the reduction of habits to the routine alone. I'm thinking of, uh, there's a concept that Mariana Ortega uh, calls home tactics. And I think of home tactics as a form of habituation as well. Uh, This is an idea uh, where Ortega talks about how we do certain things to create a sense of 
being at home in the world. Um, and uh, this is in the context of her discussion of identities in between, either in transit or um, living elsewhere, where home and everyday experience are disconnected in some way. Um, many migrants have this experience. Um, and the, uh, or, you know, in borderlands, um, even if you're not a migrant, and home tactics are practices that create this sense of being at home. I think that these tactics call on the power of habituation to create realities or to create a sense of what something means for us in our lives. And that's not fully individual either, but... Um, I see a sediment that builds. I don't think habits are dumb repetition and just routinized behavior. So when you describe what um, helped you through the pandemic, routine is the anchor, as it was for me as well. Um, routine is so important. And in times of uh, difficulty like the pandemic, I have to pay more attention to my routine than when I'm in circumstance that feels more ordinary, let's say. And paying attention to routine in that way is effortful in a sense and at some points, but when it becomes less effortful or effortless, that's when, uh, that's a sign that other things may become possible. Handwriting is a, a simplistic example of this. Um, learning to write is more effortful at first. And if we have acquired the skill of handwriting, let's say, or typing, we have made all kinds of possibilities open by acquiring that skill. And I think that habituation is part of the creative process. And this is a bit different from um, other tasks of liberatory practices. And I'm not saying it's the only thing. Uh, I just want mundaneness and ordinariness and habit to get the respect that I think it's due. I often joke that I think uh, my joke is that uh, the revolution will be mundane. <laughs> I like that. And I'm only half joking because if we did routinize um, the forms of justice that liberatory movements want to see, wouldn't it be ordinary in a way to have basic needs met, like healthcare, for example? And then on top of that, other kinds of questions, other activities of life would be possible too. So this is not to say that after the revolution, everything will be mundane and there will be no more creativity. Far from it. I think that um, having basic needs in place, the justice-oriented questions, or the fundamental skills for any uh, habit that we want to develop, I think that creates new possibilities for good and ill. But for liberatory practices, uh, I want to focus on the good. You, you speak several languages. I know two of them. 
just by being in your company. So, so tell me, what are the languages that you speak? And I really, I really envy the fact that you can speak uh, these languages because I'm really, really trying to just manage the two that I'm really, even English, I'm still trying to manage, <laughs> manage that in addition to, to, to Spanish. So tell us, you know, give us some tips, particularly for those who are, who are, who are adults and the myth is adults can't la- learn languages, it's too late for them. Yeah, what are the languages? And, and, and give us some tips or some motivations of, of, of those in adulthood who just want to throw in a towel and, and, and learning them. Well, I'm not sure I can offer much motivation when you hear what I'm about to say, because I learned Spanish as a child. Um, I was bilingual and learned French in school, which is a Latin language, similar enough to Spanish that it was pretty easy. And then I learned Portuguese living in Brazil. And in all of those, um, English, Spanish, French, and Portuguese, which are the languages that I speak, I've had immersion. So (laughs) I don't know how to recommend language learning aside from spending three years somewhere. (laughs) No, no. I mean, that's something that adults, well, I'm not going to say adults can just leave their lives for three years, but I think that immersion is is interesting, right? And and it's a little bit more filled with with possibilities than the my brain lacks the plexicity that baby brains does, right? Right. So I I must admit, I mean, I've been to several Spanish speaking countries because I believed in immersion. And because I still do believe in immersion. So, so you, you think, hey, we're not doing that's adults, right? Those are one of the things that we can do if we're, yeah. even if we're able to spend a, a month or so. I mean, not even going that far. I think, I think for several people who is interested in learn, learning languages, particularly if it's Spanish, there's places or people that you can talk to depending on what kind of city you live Absolutely. in. Absolutely. Restaurants um, you can go to. Yes. <laughs> Yes, use it or lose it. Um, I do think that immersion is key. And I also think that in the age of Netflix, um, watch telenovelas, watch K-dramas. If you are interested in learning a language, TV, um, watching shows, I think can be helpful. Hearing a language is how we learn. I, I think we're context-making machines, for lack of a better word. And um, trying to learn vocabulary as an adult in language classes, I think is not a great strategy. But I did notice when I spent nine months in Germany um, in grad school, I was picking it up. So I do think that being in an environment is key. And um, in the United States, yes, there are opportunities to do that without necessarily, you know, going to another country. So take advantage of those, whether it's on TV or going someplace where you can interact with people and the unpredictability of having to interact and being willing to make mistakes like children do. Children aren't shy about um, their half formed words or, you know, the grammar that's out of place. Go for it. And um, eventually over time, you'll acquire more ease. I will say I do find myself rusty and it takes a while to acclimate. Whenever I'm in, I have to reactivate the language ability um, when I'm not speaking one of those languages for a while. It takes a few days for me to kind of bring all the neural connections back. But I, I've seen you in work. I've seen you in work when it came to Spanish oh. at a party in the corner of a, of a house. I, I've seen you go to work. Oh, I think that was Portuguese. No, think- no, no. It was Spanish. It was Spanish. Ah, Okay. I could fully understand it. Portuguese, I think it's Spanish. And then I'm like, oh, no, it's not. It's like but, a mix it was 100%. French, yeah. <laughs> well, my accent is embarrassing, but I will say <laughs> I can function. And again, there it is. I can't be too shy. You know, I have to have the attitude of a child. Just use it. Just go for it. I talked about a little bit about what I did during the pandemic. 
I wonder for a person who works on habits, what is a habit that you think you have developed and I have scare quotes going up there during the coronavirus pandemic? Hmm. Well, uh, I did... Like you, I looked to self-made routines, which is not entirely new to us as academics, um, because if we're not teaching, for example, um, I did this in dissertation writing years when I wasn't teaching. Um, So definitely a habit of forming habits. (laughs) Number one for pandemic survival. I looked to that. And um, I created routines and I also tried new things, different things. I took up painting. Which nice. was is interesting, um, not for display, just for decorating my apartment, and because I wanted to work in a different or try different creativity that's not words. I work with right. words so much, um, and I love plants, but I hadn't really tried painting or art before, so I used the pandemic to try visual arts a bit. I uh, kept up my exercise routines. I'm a runner; that's really important to me, but that's not new. Um, I also have been meeting a daily writing group. Uh, that's new. Um, I have changed my openness to virtual meetings, which <laughs> before the pandemic, I was like, no, I don't want to do that. I right. prefer in person. And this writing group with Catherine Bell at Penn State and other women of color scholars um, has been wonderful. That has been new for me to meet virtually. Well, Natifa, thank you so much for this conversation. You're welcome. I've learned so, so much. much about habits. It's really challenged my thinking. So, so thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.